The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Taking It From the Top, Targeting a New Approach to Controlling Severe Asthma. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FTN 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. It's my pleasure to be able to be speaking on stage with someone who's become a friend over the course of the last couple of years. We met through the pandemic, we met on Instagram, and um, I couldn't wait for this day to be able to share this kind of information with a really good friend um, and friendship that's developed over the course of the past couple of years. So, um, Dr. Parikh, if you want to introduce yourself and let everybody know who you are, um, please. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much. And uh, I completely agree. Um, uh, both Dr. Rutland and I have become good friends. Uh, he's become a very respected colleague that I go to. Uh, and I was always very impressed about his uh, knowledge of immunology and the quest to seek immunology. So uh, so I'm very excited to be here. I'm Purvi Parikh. I'm a practicing allergist and immunologist in uh, New York City. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're going to dive right in. Right. And I'm Jamie or Dr. Rutland. I'm a pulmonary critical care physician in Southern California. And I spend a lot of my time on basically anything immunological as it pertains to the lung. So there's a lot of autoimmune lung disease in Southern California. All right, so what we're going to talk about today is really the immunology of asthma, which we both find fascinating. We're going to talk about bridging the gap for patients whose asthma remains uncontrolled and understanding why we need to target a broader approach. And Pervy and I spent a lot of time on bridging the gap for patients because we understand that communicating this pathophysiology to patients is of the utmost importance because we want patients to be able to understand what's going on in their body so that they can make their decisions with their clinician to be able to move forward in their life and be able to move forward in their disease. We're also going to talk about the clinical potential of emerging therapies that block epithelial cytokines, right? And we're going to identify patients that may benefit. And really what we're talking about is just targeting the airway epithelial layer as well as other cytokines to be able to combat illness. All of us right now, we're breathing. We're breathing naturally. And when we all, if we were to close our eyes and take a deep breath, I always like to describe when you take that deep breath, you're snatching the environment that surrounds you and you're introducing it to the inside of your body. And the process of doing that, although we don't think about it, there are many different molecules in that environment, in your environment, in the air, that could potentially activate your airway epithelial cells and are going to end up leading to the recruitment of white blood cells into the airway, causing inflammation and causing aggravation of your smooth muscle, which is going to lead to conditions such as asthma. And when your asthma is uncontrolled, it can be severe and it has a great impact on our quality of life, especially the quality of life for us if we have it, quality of life for our patients, right? 50, over 50% of patients with severe asthma have more than three exacerbations a year, especially as their disease severity worsens. I mean, just think about it. When you have that recruitment 
of the white blood cells into the airway, what's going to stop that recruitment? That can just keep going and going and going. And we've all seen these patients, right? They come in and they're 50 years old and they're like, oh, I've had you know, a little bit of asthma since I was in college. And I'm like, what? You had it for 30 years and you haven't used anything? You have this perpetuation of the inflammatory response, which leads to severe disease. 10% of the patients with asthma are considered to have severe asthma. Again, our practices are probably a little bit different because we see the mm-hmm. most severe. Right. Um, Globally, there's about two and a half million patients, I think there's probably more, with severe asthma who are uncontrolled or eligible for cellular communication inhibitor therapy. Now, I personally am not a fan of the word biologic because I don't think it means much, but when you say cellular communication inhibitor, at least to me, people start to think about that. My patients start to think about that. They'll ask a question. They'll say, What's, what do you mean cellular communication? These are words that they can uh, understand. Costs are significant, right? I don't need to say how much it costs to be able to treat patients with asthma. We already know the more severe the disease, the higher the cost is going to be associated with your your disease process. Defining severe asthma is pretty simple. We all know how to define severe asthma, right? So people who are on an inhaled corticosteroid or uh, a a long-acting beta agonist along with other modifiers like leukotriene, uh, receptor antagonists and such, who continue to need steroids over 50% of the year who have poor symptom control, who have a lot of exacerbations requiring hospitalization, you know who that severe asthmatic is. You guys all have the picture of your patient in your head or your friend or your colleague. And if you don't, you're probably starting to think about it. Oh, maybe that, maybe Claire, who's coughing all the time, uh, who never wants to go out because she's coughing all the time, maybe that is severe asthma, right? And the whole point is to be able to get people to recognize who has severe asthma so that we can be able to get them um, the most appropriate targeted therapy. When you have asthma, we all manage with initial local therapies with inhalers, right? Whether that inhaler is a short-acting beta agonist, and then we kind of upgrade their therapy if they continue to exacerbate or continue to have symptoms, and they take an inhaled corticosteroid. One of the things that we notice is that a lot of our patients may not be using their inhaler correctly or at all, right? And when they don't use it at all or correctly, they're more likely to have an exacerbation. So at least in my office, and I'm sure in Dr. Parikh's office, your staff do inform your patients, right, and and teach them how to use their inhalers appropriately and things like that. And often there's a lot of confusion. I'm sure we've all seen it, that people will um, switch their rescue or quick relief inhaler for their controller medication. And so many times they'll say, oh, well, you know, this one's red and this one's red, and so I didn't know which one to take. So... Just those extra few minutes of uh, patient education going over the technique can go a long way for asthma control and adherence and explaining why, you know, one is more important to be taken on a daily basis and why uh, the other is not uh, good to use on a daily basis. Right. And I, and I think, you know, one of the things that's even happening now is as we prescribe our cellular communication inhibitors to our patients, these patients are doing what, right? We all know they're add-on therapies. These patients are stopping their inhalers, Right. And so what ends up happening is I get a few phone calls from insurance companies. They'll call and they'll say, hey, Mr. Smith hasn't picked up his inhaler from CVS for the last three months. We're going to (laughs) stop his cellular communication inhibitor and we're not going to pay for it anymore. And I'm like, dude, Bob, can you please like just pick up your inhaler? (laughs) I I know you need to use it. Yeah, but like at least pick it up because that's going to lead to some problems for you. When we look at asthma, and again, I'm a pulmonologist, and a lot of people like are up here, why is a pulmonologist you know, up here talking about immunology? Number one, because it's the coolest subject on the planet. Um, and number two, because I love it. And asthma is a very heterogeneous disease, right? When you look at the pathophysiology, we have endotypes, we have phenotypes. 
And everybody tries to put people in a box. You want to say, oh, you're this person or you're that person. You have eosinophilic asthma. You have posigranulocytic asthma. You have neutrophilic asthma. And I think that's cool. That's great. But I think what really needs to happen is we have to be able to define people immunologically. We have to be able to look at their serum, look at the cells of their lung, look at that bronchoalveolar lavage fluid, and really understand what's dominating the field. What cytokine is dominating? What cell is dominating that area that's leading to this activation, this inflammation, these things that lead to our patients presenting with asthma, right? And so we get into endotypes and phenotypes and describing that. And I think whenever... I close my eyes and I take that deep breath. This is what's in my head, right? And this was pulled from the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of years ago in severe asthma, where you have that airway epithelial cell layer. And this is a living, breathing organism, right? This is an environment that is constantly exposed to the outside environment, right? I practice in Newport Beach. I've got a lot of kids that come to my office from Long Beach, where they're constantly surrounded by air pollution from cars, they live next to freeways, and everybody is digging for oil over there, and the air over there is just awful, right? And so they're breathing this stuff in at high concentrations, and they're activating this inflammatory response, right? You've got that airway epithelial cell saying, ooh, I don't like this. I'm going to ask my alarm ins or my damage-associated molecular patterns. They're going to look at 25, 33, TSLP. They're going to communicate with the dendritic cell. They're going to communicate with an innate lymphoid cell type 2. And the thing about this immunology is it's brand new. I mean, the innate lymphoid cell type 2 was formerly called the lymphoid progenitor cell, discovered in 1997. And it's like a cousin of the NK cell, the natural killer cell, which was discovered in 1975. I mean, this immunology is super new, yeah, right? Right. Most, most of this is all in the last 50 years, if not 30 years. So it's huge in what we can do now to really personalize medicine for right. patients. Yeah. And then when you, when you get down to the cytokines that are secreted, right, after the dendritic cell is activated communicates with a naive T cell. Naive T cell becomes a Th2 cell. You have the innate, lymph innate lymphoid cell type 2, hence the name type 2 inflammation, you know, kind of a cool name. But you get these cytokines that are produced, interleukins 4, 5, 9, 13. And then you start to understand, as a result of these cytokines being produced, you get these physical manifestations of illness, right? Interleukin 4 leads to isotype switching. So you get a lot of IgG1 production, a lot of IgE production. It also leads to the release of certain chemokines and cytokines that allow the cells to roll on the vessels and the lymph tissue to get into the lung. You've got interleukin-5, which is responsible for eosinophil maturation. You've got interleukin-9, which is responsible for mast cell development, right? Remember the mast cell. When IgE binds to the mast cell, you get release of those granules, which have more chemokines and cytokines on the inside, right? Periostins, CCL2, eotaxins. And then you also have interleukin-13, which is also responsible for not only stimulating that goblet cell and telling the goblet cell to make more mucus, right, wet cough, whatever, but you also have its responsibility with the airway smooth muscle and the way that it communicates with the airway smooth muscle, telling it to become a little bit thicker, telling it to be hyperactive, telling it to be a little sensitive, right? We, all, we don't want our kids to be too sensitive. We want them to be able to absorb some of the world, just like we want our airway epithelial cells in that layer to be able to absorb some of this and not be so sensitive. So sometimes you've got to tell it to just calm down and be quiet, and we're going to talk about that. We want to describe these patients and their subtypes of asthma. We 
phenotypes, endotypes, and endotype is like T2 high, T2 low, and you have eosinophilic asthma, you've got the mixed bag, uh, eosinophilic, neutrophilic, you've got posse granulocytic, neutrophilic. And uh, um, Dr. Preek, in your practice, is this what you're thinking about when you see your patients? Like, are you like looking through them like, huh, I wonder what you have? Yeah, I mean, in, in a way, I am classifying each patient as they come in. Uh, you know, being an allergist, there are many atopic individuals that come through my door. So many fit into the eosinophilic category, but many don't, you know, and many have these mixed pictures. Um, all of us, you know, go through the workup in terms of, you know, skin testing, objective me- measures like nitric oxide, spirometry, what have you. Um, but now, more than ever, we're relying on those uh, blood biomarkers, right, to really help distinguish. Because if somebody is coming in and they're uncontrolled or severe, I don't want to waste time putting them on the wrong uh, biologic medication or monoclonal antibody. I want to make sure I want to set this patient up for success. So uh, absolutely, you know, all of us have seen, you know, the the very allergic uh, individual and also that individual that doesn't fit into any of these categories. And I don't call it posse granulocytic, but that that is that person. You know, they, they don't have a lot of inflammatory cells in their blood. They're not behaving like an allergic type person. Right. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, for me, again, because of my love for immunology, the way that I think about this at least in my practice and speaking selfishly for just a second, I'm in the hospital every single day. I'm taking care of patients that have severe disease, either in the intensive care unit or on the floor, right? I also have my patients in my clinic, but I think that to be able to establish an immunological look at patients as they're in the hospital is extremely important because where do the severe patients go? They go to the ER, they go to the ICU. One of the things that I'm not necessarily excited about is there is a lack of emergency department physician presence at some of these conferences. And I think it's important for them to be able to understand this because if the patient presents to the ER and they have severe asthma, there's a point where you can intervene right there. I always tell my ER friends, I'm like, hey, and I got a, my neighbor, my daughter hangs out with his daughter, both nine years old. He's an ER physician at Kaiser in Southern California. And I always teach him the immunology of asthma because when the patient presents, I'm like, hey, listen, Martin, like if you know the patient's name and you, and you diagnose them with asthma and you know their name, you're like, hey, Joe's back, you know, he's coming back with the same thing. You need to be directing Joe to someone like me or someone like Dr. Parikh to be able to get him treated appropriately so that we can define this. And even more than that, Martin, why don't you come over here and take a look at this. I want you to understand getting a CBC with diff, you're going to do it anyway. But try to get it done before you give them that methylprednisolone in the ED, right? Try to get that IgE done. I know you're not used to checking IgE, but it's going to help us out. It's going to save a visit. Because generally, if the patient makes it to us, we're going to get their blood that day, and then we're going to wait for the results, and then we're going to see them again. In this case, patient goes to the ER, CBC with diff is done, IgE is done. No, I don't expect them to have pheno in the ER. I'm not tripping about that. But at least we can start to define what it is immunologically, right? right? Absolutely. We make the same case even for some of our anaphylaxis patients and checking tryptase, right? Because that window they have in the ER is so crucial where we can gain so much knowledge from the immune standpoint. So It's so important. And again, we saw it with COVID-19 this year, right? Immunology was extremely important, being able to define what the patients were going through. And I think what I noticed, and actually what we noticed is patients are smart, they're really smart. They really wanted to understand what was going on inside their body. Why was the body behaving this way or that way? And even though it started with COVID, it transitioned to 
well, is this what's happening in my yeah. asthma? I'm sure you get yes. those questions Absolutely. on social media, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And in fact, I don't know, this is just anecdotally, many of my patients who were on uh, these agents fared much better if they did come down with COVID-19 because they were well-controlled mm-hmm. on their uh, monoclonal antibodies for asthma. Which is super, super interesting. And again, we mentioned this, right? When you're looking at T2 high, you want to look at these biomarkers. You want to, I said CBC with diff. Sputum eosinophils is important. IgE is important. Pheno is important. Exhaled nitric oxide, right? When that uh, when the inflammatory cells are present in your, your lung, you're getting that conversion from the arginine to citrulline, that release of that nitric oxide. Turns out nitric oxide release, phenol, is heavily associated with interleukin-13. So the higher the pheno, the higher the interleukin-13 level in the body. When you're looking at neutrophilic asthma, you're going to see neutrophils. We know that. These are the cytokines that are involved, interleukin-1, beta, interleukin-8. When you look at T2 low asthma, right, here's where that posse granulocytic comes in. And what we think here... Maybe this is an airway smooth muscle issue. Maybe this is, in my interstitial lung disease world, we say a lot of, oh, it's burned out sarcoid. Maybe this is burned out asthma, right? The inflammatory cells have bounced. They're exhausted. They're not there. But the airway smooth muscle layer is really thick, right? And that's the issue. I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on posse granulocytic, but those are some of mine. Yeah, absolutely. It could be a patient who's already had those features of remodeling, uh, starting to have early bronchiectasis due to a lifetime of uncontrolled asthma and inflammation. So, yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. Yeah, and for me, this remodeling thing is is extremely important, right, where you get that epithelial mesenchymal transition, right? You're moving away from how the airway is supposed to look into becoming this really thick fibrotic mess, and that's an issue for me. So whenever I'm thinking about these patients, right, when I have these kids and I have 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds come into my clinic, I'm just like, man, if we're not treating this kid well, what are we talking, 30, 40 years of airway remodeling? And once it remodels, that's it. Like, it's not going back to what it was, right? And that's an issue. Yeah, that's the argument, actually, I use with parents who are very resistant to using inhaled steroids because they're afraid in their children, oh, but what about the effects on both development, growth development? And after explaining to them, you know, it's not as much of an issue as if, let's say, your child needs oral steroids from uncontrolled asthma, I then explain the remodeling because I'm like, well, right now it's reversible. But if we leave this inflammation unchecked over years, over decades, you're doing your child a much bigger disservice because once those changes become permanent, uh, there's no going back. Right. And as an interstitial lung disease guy, I always call asthma whenever I think about it like that the world's oldest interstitial lung disease, right? I mean, that's what it is. And so I think of not only airway remodeling, I think of like fibrosis. And I'm like, huh, is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, some of these interstitial lung diseases, is it really just a different level of inflammation? And perhaps maybe I'm also helping the world get rid of ILD by treating asthma earlier. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's just something that comes to my mind, right? When you think about this T2 high asthma, you have to understand there's an opportunity to intervene and an opportunity to intervene really, really well. We know they're going to respond to oral corticosteroids. We know they're going to respond to anti-IgE. We're going to respond to anti-eosinophils because those are the molecules that are involved here. Um, When we look at T2 low asthma, it's a little bit harder. You've got a neutrophilic predominance, right? 40 to 60% of neutrophils. You've got oxidative stress. Um, You've got generally a poor response to cortical steroids. Again, for me, you just want to immunologically define that patient, right? You want to immunologically look at this patient and say, okay, what, if they have severe asthma, what cellular communication inhibitor or biologic 
um, are they going to respond to? Is that how you think about it too? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with these neutrophilic patients, they are more steroid resistant, both inhaled and oral. Um, and, you know, they have other oxidative stress. So they might be obese or overweight, uh, ex-smokers, um, after chronic infection. So uh, each, each kind of fits into their phenotype, but there's a lot of overlap too. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And again, you're thinking about the different cells that are driving this condition, right? You see these Th17, Th1. And, and again, I know some people are like, oh, pulmonologist knows about that. Yeah, we, we do. And we should know more about it because for me, the body is just a giant party and it's just cells communicating with one another. And when they communicate, if they congregate in the wrong place or if they congregate, you know, if the club gets too hot and there's too many people, you want to get out of there, right? It's really, you don't want to really be there, right? Sometimes things can happen, bad things can happen. It's the same thing here. These cells are communicating. It's too hot in the club. Like it's, it's just a problem, right? It's too hot and sweaty and it's not good. For posse granulocytic, again, we don't see neutrophils. We don't see eosinophils. There's low inflammation, but what we do see is a thicker airway smooth muscle layer. Um, we do see airflow limitation as a result of airway remodeling. And here's that collagen deposition. This is where that macrophage has polarized. That macrophage has gone from that M1 to M2. You're getting that recruitment of the myofibroblast laying down that collagen. And again, for me, when, I, when the patient walks in, this is what I'm thinking about. I know because my staff will do a little bit of research for patients come in, if it's a 67-year-old who said he's had asthma his whole life, I know this is probably what I'm looking at, maybe a little bit of this. Um, and that's an issue, right? What are you, what are you seeing? I'm sure you're seeing similar things. With yeah, absolutely. And, and this is, again, that person that comes in, very bad asthma. Um, I've searched for allergies. They have none. You know, um, they have clear obstruction. Sometimes it's not even reversible by this point because they do have those hypertrophic changes, the airway remodeling. Um, and, you know, and then we, I go to the biomarkers. I, I go to pheno, and then those blood biomarkers might not be there. They have very low IgE, very low eosinophilia. Um, again, steroid resistant, ending up in the hospital frequently or ending up with frequent exacerbations. Uh, so this is, all of us have this patient, right? And, and now uh, hopefully we have better treatments for them too, because the one size fits all approach to asthma doesn't work for everyone. No, not at all. I mean, in fact, I find myself, again, as a pulmonologist and I do interventional pulmonary too, I find myself bronching these people, biopsying these people, looking under the microscope with the pathologist to be able to define what we're seeing. What kind of cells are we seeing? I stain for a lot of different things. I'll even stain for certain cytokine receptors just to be able to describe personally what this patient is going through to see if there is an opportunity to intervene and make the patient better. And I actually have a question for you. Is that last profile, the posse granulocytic, someone you would consider bronchial thermoplasty for? I know that's yeah. not what we're talking about today, mm -hmm. but that just came to mind when yeah. you were describing that state. So, yeah, it, it is. Because, again, with the thermal energy from bronchial thermoplasty, what you're doing really is maybe telling the airway smooth muscle layer to, like, shut up, right? And so that's how I think about it. And, again, I think... Overall, I think bronchial thermoplasty is a little bit archaic. Like, I'm glad we don't have to do it as much anymore. I'm glad there's cellular communication inhibitors and biologics right. that you can use before you get there. But yes, right? And I think more of like burned out sarcoid, burned out asthma. It's like, well, man, you know, I don't really see an immunologic profile here that is going to lend itself to therapy response. So maybe, or I didn't before, but so maybe I do need to do this. I don't like to do it because I just feel weird about applying heat in an airway. Right. It just is a little bit strange <laughs> to me. But 
I will do it from time to time. Well, the good news is now there's more options that we'll go through right now in targeting these patients as well. So... Um, a significant burden still remains for many patients with severe uncontrolled uh, asthma despite available treatment. Um, and, you know, I, I had read somewhere that, you know, majority of uncontrolled asthmatics actually don't even realize they're uncontrolled. So there's a, a big disconnect, and that's a lot of uh, what I spend my time doing and Dr. Rutland does as well, is educating patients so they know they're uncontrolled. Some people just become accustomed to it. They think it's normal to not be able to do household chores without getting short of breath or even just playing with their kids. They think it's normal to be waking up every night, and, and it's not. They shouldn't be doing these things. So many patients with severe asthma have an inadequate response to biologic treatment and oral corticosteroids and fail to re- uh, achieve asthma control for many of the reasons that we already described, uh, poor ad- adherence, poor understanding of their disease state, um, and likely th- they may not be on the appropriate uh, treatment therapeutics. Uh, exacerbate rates and study populations with uh, that even those that are on um, other monoclonal antibody treatments like anti-IgE, anti-IL-5, um, anti-IL-4, and, and even these only reduced uh, by 50%. So you would think, okay, once you're putting somebody on something like a monoclonal agent, that their asthma would become extremely well controlled. But why? You know, so are we missing a group of patients that aren't responding to the currently available treatments. So, you know, what's going on here? As we went through, you know, kind of all the different uh, phenotypes and overlapping phenotypes of asthma, we know it's not a one-size-fits-all illness by any means, and not everybody fits into that allergic and eosinophilic phenotype, you know, and, and to date, majority of our targeted monoclonal antibody treatments are targeting those pathways. So ex- that's what the existing uh, biologics target, those immunologic pathways, and that might explain why still there's almost 50% of these severe uncontrolled asthmatics that are still uncontrolled, despite being on these very expensive, uh, you know, injectable therapies. And, you know, these the type 2 inflammation can result from several inflammatory signals um, in addition to IL-5. So uh, pheno, which Dr. Rutland touched on, is driven by IL-13, a great marker of eosinophilic inflammation within the airway. Um, this can remain unchanged even during the anti-IL-5 treatment, um, despite reduction in eosinophils, because you're not targeting that IL-13. Again, eosinophils may remain unchanged uh, even during the IL-4 targeting, you know, with uh, dupilumab, uh, despite reduction in pheno. So it's, it's important to realize that even with good intentions, when we're placing um, our patients on some of these agents, there may be other uh, spots of inflammation that still go unchecked. And that might be why that asthmatic is still exacerbating, still requiring steroids, and, you know, still ending up in the ER and in our offices. And I'm sure all of you are thinking about patients that are coming to your head, but even as I read this slide, I'm thinking about certain individuals that I've, I've put on, you know, Zolaire, they've failed. I've put them on uh, Dupixent, they're still exacerbating. So, uh, again, there is an area that's, um, that's open, and I'm sure you see many of these as well. Yeah, I often think of, like, the, the world-famous John Hammond from 
Jurassic Park when he's sitting there and he says, life will find a way. I think information <laughs> will find a way. Right. Right. So you're going to have to have a more broader approach and be able to target some other things. Yeah. The immune system is very smart. It's the most nimble organ, uh, as one of my uh, mentors, <laughs> Chop, has said. So it does find different ways to compensate when other areas are blocked. So a broad inflam- inflammatory target is needed, right? One that involves IL-4, IL-5, IL-13. Um, most insurance companies are not going to approve two biologics at once. And even when I have gotten that done, they still remain uncontrolled. So there's still a gap somewhere. Um, And that's where we come in. That's where the um, epithelial cytokines come in or the alarmants. So that's uh, TSLP, IL-33, and IL-25. And this is the airway epithelium. You know, so that's even before, that's that first line of defense, right? Even before we get deeper into the IL-4, IL-13, and IgE. So I talked about this ad nauseum. Again, I think that the immunology of this is extremely important. Um, The epithelium produces alarmins, right, that drive asthma inflammation as a result of being exposed to a certain pollutant antigen, whether it's a dust mite, whether it's grass or ragweed, doesn't matter. This is what happens. And for me, the thing that I get extremely excited about is this is the epithelial layer. So is it not just asthma, right? For me, is it hypersensitivity pneumonitis? Is it interstitial lung disease exacerbations, right? So is this, are these therapies going to, in the future, be studied? And they're being studied now. But are they going to be able to prevent these things from happening? Because we all know that ILD exacerbations, IPF exacerbations are fatal disease processes. Mm-hmm. So this is where I get really, really excited. The airway epithelium is that first line of defense. And what's cool about it is when you look um, and you stain for certain characteristics of the cytoskeleton of that airway epithelial cell, you can see that the overabundance of some of these cytokines leads to this fence breaking down. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look as strong, right? And these are things that when they happen... And you're thinking about it with a patient. When the patient comes in, you're like, oh, they're just an asthma exacerbation. But then when you actually see it under the microscope and you can see the breakdown, you see the normal, and it's like this strong, nice fence. And then you see the abnormal, the overabundance of these cytokines, and this fence is just weak as hell. You're just like, man, I mean, it really has a strong, profound um, effect on you, right? Yeah, and if you just think about the surface area, right, that the epithelium covers, that fence it, 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 there's so many places where there can be that breakdown, and that's why it's so key to keep that outer defenses just as intact as the inner defenses. Right. And what the body is really trying to do, because the body is smart, right, is when that fence breaks down, when it snaps, it's trying to reconnect the fence. And so sometimes in the process of recruiting these inflammatory cells to try to get the fence reconnected, the body can't. And you've got all these alveolar spaces. And so the body's like, well, let me figure out if I can make this connection. Just lays down a bridge, right? Which is like right. scar. And it lays it down and lays it down and lays it down. You can actually see this process happening beautifully. And it's, it's beautiful, but it's bad, right? Because you get this airway remodeling. You get that inflammation. So the epithelial layer, the epithelial breakdown is the key component of all of this, right? In almost, in my mind, in almost any airway disease, That's why it's very important, again, to bring that immunology and that cell communication 
into the hospital, into the ER, into the ICU. Yeah, it's like if you have an intruder in your house, you'd rather stop them at the gate, right, right. than at the front door, or worse, them get inside of your house, right? That's how I look at it. At right, least. and that's what we're explaining here, right? It's a protective barrier, right? It mediates immunity. So it's like the bouncer, right? So somebody gets there and it's like, hey, like, you don't belong here, bro. Like, oh, you want to get loud about it? Okay, I'm going to call over some of my friends, right? And so all the, all the other bouncers come over and then they end up trying to push this guy away. But sometimes the guy gets through and that's the problem, <laughs> right? Then you really got to activate those cytokines and call the cops and it, it becomes an issue, right? You get this, that's the starting point for that airway remodeling. And that's not cool because it leads to a lot of large numbers of white blood cells infiltrating this area, causing aggravation, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got interleukin-33, you've got TSLP, you've got interleukin-25. And everybody looks at these things as the same, but not necessarily the same. And I could go through the details of each and how they're a little bit different microscopically and what types of cells end up getting recruited to that sub-epithelial layer. But I think the overall point of this is that as a result of these alarmins and their presence, right, it leads to the recruitment of the white blood cells into that layer where they're not wanted and the smooth muscle gets really pissed off and it's like, why are you here, bro? Like, I don't want you here. And it gets really thick and then people start to exacerbate and that's an issue, right? There's, there's elements of it that are supposed to protect us but sometimes if you have that genetic predisposition to do so, it becomes really, really aggravating. TSLP, thymic stromal lymphopoietin, is a key epithelial cytokine. It was first described in 2001. Again, at least for me in 2001, where was I? I was in college, I think. <laughs> um, I was like a second or third year in college at the time. So this is when it was discovered. That's why this stuff is really cool to me. Epithelial cells are one of the primary sources of TSLP. There's other sources, mast cells, um, dendritic cells, fibroblasts, smooth muscle cells also make it as well. It initiates that downstream innate and adaptive immune response. Again, it starts to lead to that cellular recruitment, not only that cellular recruitment, but also that smooth muscle, right? It's producing CCL2 leading to fibroblast recruitment and that myofibroblast and laying down that collagen. Um, variants at that loci, that gene locus, and they're all on, God, what chromosome is it? I forgot, it's 15 or 17, anyway. Uh, variants of the TSLP gene loci have been associated with asthma risk. I just mentioned it has direct effects on fibroblasts, right? CCL2, which may contribute to some of this airway remodeling. Mast cells are activated by TSLP and may provide a cycle of TSLP um, structural changes, and it also directly stimulates airway smooth muscle cells um, and that can promote airway inflammation, right? Does that yeah. mean, is this how you think about TSLP? Yeah, absolutely. And again, because it has that broader effect uh, where it's higher, where at the top of that cascade, right, before it's differentiated, um, one, this may be an ideal agent, even if you have uh, a T2 high patient, right, that's not responding as well to one of the other bi uh, monoclonal antibodies or biologics they're on, or it could be something you may consider right out the gate on any patient, either T2 high or T2 low, because it's so high up in that cascade, it is at that first line of defense. Right. And that way you can catch that inflammation before it starts, uh, you know, wreaking havoc on the rest of the airway uh, parenchyma.
what are features of asthma associated with TSLP? Dr. Rutland asks, like, you know, who, who are you thinking about when you're thinking about TSLP and alarmins, alarmin-mediated uh, mechanisms? So um, asthma severity plays a role. So this is obviously not the intermittent. I'm not always thinking about it with the intermittent asthmatics. I'm not saying it's not possible that TSLP is a major driver in these individuals. Um, maybe the moderate persistent asthmatics, you know, because they too fall into that category of uncontrolled asthma. Absolutely, the severe asthmatics, as we mentioned before, um, those with reduced lung function, potential airway remodeling, or may already have the start of airway remodeling. Um, you know, I, I trained in the Bronx at Montefiore Medical Center, so we saw a lot of severe asthma, and we would have so many immune referrals, right, for bronchiectasis, and overwhelmingly, their immune systems were normal. They didn't have immune deficiency. They didn't have CVID, and I was puzzled, like, why do they have such bad bronchiectasis? And I realized it was from airway remodeling. So their asthma had gotten so bad and so unchecked that their lungs looked like a CVID patient, to your point earlier, that this might be stopping other uh, lung pathologies from occurring. Uh, Reduced steroid response, as I just mentioned, and exaggerated response to viral infection. So we've all seen these individuals, right, that after a flu, even after COVID, after any virus, right, they are uh, knocked out, down for the count, and their asthma is so hard to get under control, even weeks later. Um, they're still coughing. They're still short of breath, despite being on all of their controller medication. So this is kind of the, the poster child of TSLP that I think of. But, you know, obviously there's a lot of overlap. Um, again, just to recap uh, this really nice schematic, TSLP is central to the regulation of type 2 immunity and is also involved in the non-type 2 immune responses. So again, this is great because now I can start broad and narrow down if I want to, right? If I have a very poorly controlled asthmatic, already has remodeling, tells me they're in the ER, you know, every other month, you know, I can, I'm a big fan of first getting things under control, even though GINA guidelines might not agree with me. I'm a big fan of getting things under control first, and then I can taper down, right? Because that's most important to me. Um, TSLP expression is increased in patients, uh, in the airways of patients with asthma, and it correlates with TH2 cytokine and chemokine expression and disease severity. Um, so this even applies to those super atopic individuals um, that, that are the allergy poster childs. Uh, TSLP is also involved in neutrophilic inflammation uh, via TH1 and TH17. So it's really nice that it fits into kind of every phenotype. And as you can see, it's right at that very top of the cascade. So you're catching them early, catching the intruder at the gate before they come in and invade uh, your home. Yeah. Anything to add? Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you. I mean, I think... What's beautiful about this representation, at least to me, is you can see that it doesn't matter what the antigen is, viruses, allergens, whatever, pollution, you get the production of TSLP, which leads the charge, right? It starts to lead to the recruitment of all of these cells in the area. And again, for me, as somebody who just tries to think ahead, I mean, can you imagine if an asthmatic went to the ER? And I'm not suggesting that it works there, but I'm just saying, went to the ER, they exacerbated. Like, how are you going to calm that down? Now, you know, we give our traditional medications, but what if you could give something like this and it reduced length of stay in the hospital? It reduced the, maybe the number of hours they were in the ER. May, you know, again, these are just things that I think about because I love the GINA guidelines. I think GINA's great. GINA's cool. It's awesome. But I do think they're a bit archaic in the way of their thinking. We know now that cytokines are involved in this. And here is a perfect representation 
of why telling the cytokines to shut up and calm down is important. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, again, it is very important to distinguish asthma severity from asthma control and to address secondary factors leading to poor asthma control, right? We have several subtypes of asthma that exist, T2 high, T2 low, mixed. What I really would love for you guys to do is if you have ER friends, you have ER colleagues, teach them this. Let them start to think about this because I think that they're seeing a lot of our patients that we can help. Try to figure it out. Again, for me, I know that allergy immunologists aren't necessarily like hospital lovers. I get it. <laughs> but if you just show up every once in a while and just put the bug in their ear, they're going to listen, right? They're going to listen to you and you'll be able to see those severe patients, the ones that we can affect because we know that the airway epithelium plays a critical role and understanding that the airway epithelium leads to a lot of this respiratory illness, we, if we explain it to those physicians at the gates, right, the ER physicians, the urgent care physicians, then perhaps they can understand that these epithelial alarmins are important and they understand that they act upstream in the inflammatory pathway of asthma. I think we're going to transition now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to go into the, um, you know, other emerging therapies as we've been alluding to throughout the presentation. But absolutely, I think a lot of it is uh, raising that awareness amongst our colleagues and other specialties, even at the primary care level too, because many are showing up, you know, in their internist office, in the family practice office, pediatrician's office, and often that, you know, fire is put out, but I think just kind of getting, saying that, you know, you shouldn't be putting out that fire, the exacerbation, more than, you know, once a year at most, ideally zero, you know, even two or three means, okay, they need to be potentially on one of these agents. Um, so with that, we're kind of, we'll go into the, you know, emerging therapies that block these epithelial cells. So, you know, when is a biologic mon or a monoclonal antibody, um, and I, I like how you put it, cell, what was it, cell communication? Cell cellular communicate, <laughs> cellular, cellular communicating inhibitor. Inhibitor, yeah. <laughs> so well, when, are, when are one of these agents indicated? And again, these are the GINA guidelines that we were just uh, talking about before. And, and currently it says it's at step five, you know, but um, all of us know that we, we see patients all of the time that we don't want to wait till step five because they're already in the ER, in the urgent care. They're exacerbating multiple times a year. Um, they're already getting uh, some of the downward effects of steroid dependence. Um, and again, it's not just adults, you know, a large po portion of this population is adolescents, is teenagers. So adults and adolescents, uh, 12 and up, uh, really have a, um, a, a nice opportunity for appropriate personalized asthma management that we didn't necessarily have before. Um, but again, of course, nobody is uh, arguing against using those controller medications, inhaled steroids, the ICS-LABA. But remember, if you know, be quick to pull that trigger if people are still requiring multiple doses of steroids despite this. Um, and objective tests for asthma, I know majority of the uh, people in this room are asthma specialists. So I don't, I'm, you know, preaching to the choir, but um, these tests surprisingly are not used as much as they should be. And, you know, I even saw a survey of patients and physicians that, um, you know, Beringer Engelheim did a couple years ago that actually showed this, that actually less than half of the time on these, even 
even asthma follow-up visits, these uh, measures like exhaled nitric oxide spirometry, they're not being used. And I think that's a disservice to our patients because I think it, it really helps even in patient education that I can show someone, look, the, your uh, airway um, epithelium, you have this much inflammation, or look, you are this obstructed. This is where you should be. And it's very helpful. So, you know, that pheno over 40, if they're showing obstruction on um, their spirometry, it's helpful. Even if they aren't, it's still very helpful, right? Because we know once you get to that stage of the airway remodeling, um, you know, the bronchiectasis, uh, you know, granulomatous disease, you may not have that reversibility and, and it may look very different. And that's where uh, the pheno and other markers of, um, you know, T2 high or eosinophilic inflammation may be helpful. So uh, novel therapies until 2021, um, anti-IgE, which many, obviously everyone's very familiar with, omalizumab, um, all, which targets uh, IgE, and then the anti-IL-5 therapies, which largely target, uh, IL-5 is a cytokine um, for you know, eosinophil uh, recruitment, me- mepolizumab, resilizumab, and venralizumab, and then uh, dupilumab came onto the scene, which was nice because then it had targets to both IL-4 and IL-13. So it was almost like it was able to help uh, control that anti-IgE response as well as the eosinophil response. Um, And then this is just a great uh, schematic just to keep straight in your head um, how these work, you know. So benralizumab um, versus mepolizumab and resilizumab, you know, they all target IL-5, but some will work on the IL-5 receptor versus directly on the cell. Uh, Benralizumab is unique in that it recruits natural killer cells to help uh, eliminate those eosinophils. Um, and then, you know, other targets, IL-4, IL-13, DUPI, uh, you know, as we all <laughs> refer to it, that targets the IL-4-RA, the IL-4 receptor. So what it does is it prevents binding, not just to IL-4, but also it prevents IL-13 from binding to its receptor. And what this does is it broadens that T2 uh, inflammatory blockade. So whereas IgE, the anti-IgE and the anti-IL-5s were very honed in on eosinophils or IgE, this actually helps target both. And we found that it was better for those individuals, because we've seen them all, right, that we're not sure which agent to choose. Both their IgE is high and they have eosinophilia. Uh, You know, they are allergic, but at the same time, they're steroid dependent, they're uncontrolled. Maybe they weren't doing as well on uh, Zolaire or omalizumab alone or, you know, benralizumab or one of the other agents. Um, And then this, so this is a broader approach. Again, works downstream via that JAK-STAT pathway. Um, And again, it's nice because it targets both IgE and eosinophils. Um, But now we have uh, another agent. So we have something that we can approach even broader, you know, higher up in that cascade as Dr. Rutland was going through, um, TSLPs. So tezipelumab, tezipelumab, I can never say these, (laughs) uh, binds to TSLP and it specifically blocks it from interacting with its receptor. So it's another receptor binding agent and it has a potential to inhibit multiple downstream inflammatory pathways. So not just uh, IgE, eosinophilia, but it can uh, have effects on the neutrophilic pathway, on the posse granulocytic pathway, um, and even other potential anti-inflammatories because again, it is that first line of defense. Um, And, you know, the studies have been uh, very good, you know. So in phase two studies, it um, 
Tezzy showed a significant reduction in um, annualized exacerbations versus placebo. And that's what we want, right? We want to improve our patient's quality of life. We want to stop that airway remodeling, keep them out of the emergency rooms, urgent cares. Um, and we also saw a broad range of efficacy in a very uh, large range of patients because of that broader um, impact. So again, on those patients with the high eosinophil counts, on those um, with high... Uh, exhaled nitric oxide levels on those with the TH2 status. So it's great that now we're seeing not only exacerbations reducing, but also objectively, objective measures of asthma and airway inflammation are also improving um, in these agents. Um, and again, exacerbations, uh, phase three studies showed re reduction in exacerbations, again, in a broad range of inflammatory profiles too. So this is a great way to target a large group of patients and get their asthma under control. Um, this is another a great slide going through uh, more biomarkers. Um, again, eosinophil counts, exhaled nitric oxide, IgE, all reduced significantly on um, TESI over a one-year period. Um, and this is a question I have for you. How frequently do you monitor biomarkers in your patients? Yeah, you know... I, or do you? Yeah, you know? I do. I don't I, always. Yeah, I, I tend to. I mean, a lot of times... I'm doing it just to like feel good. Like, hey, look, like your eosinophil count came down, or hey, look, you know, your IgE came down. Like, how are you feeling? You know, sometimes my patients will ask me, I want to take a look, like, can we draw it? But like, in actuality, like, if the patient responds, generally you know they're going to respond. Um, when they respond, I'm just kind of like, I don't really need to check it. Because sometimes you can get confused. You're right. like, oh, this didn't come down. But the patient's like, I feel the best I've ever felt in my life. So you just, you, they can get confusing. So it just kind of depends. But it's nice to see this right. because you know the impact it's having clinically. And it's matching up what's happening inside the body as well, you know. And I think it's also important to note when the appropriate time to check these things are. So exhaled nitric oxide, you can check frequently throughout on follow-ups. But something like IgE, uh, when you put someone on an agent like omalizumab, it actually goes up, right? Because you're freeing it from, uh, you know, the mast cell, you're uh, reducing that cross-linking. So uh, after a year, you know, it's nice to be able to show your patient, look, some of these uh, levels are coming down in your blood, like IgE eosinophils. But I agree, I don't always monitor the blood biomarkers, especially if the patient is improving clinically. Right. Um, but exhaled nitric oxide is a great and easy tool to use on it. Uh, and it, that in com combination with the spirometry on the routine follow-up. Um, and the other interesting thing, speaking of broad uh, blockade, that we found that even... Um you know, non uh, cells that you don't typically think of in asthma also uh, may be affected by some of this. I mean, as you can see, eosinophils is number one in reducing that airway submucosal inflammatory cascade, but there is a little bit of, um, you know, reduction in mast cells as well, which is very interesting. So there may be other um, therapeutic modalities for these broader agents, as Dr. Rutland uh, alluded to. Um, and then I don't know if you want to there, close yeah, it out. <laughs> yeah, there are, you know, there are other emerging therapies. And I think when you think about anti-alarmant therapy, there is astagolumab, which is an anti-IL-33. And when you look at those, uh, when you look at those data, you can see that it does have effect on these patients that have eosinophilic asthma, patients um, that have that T2 high response. You can see the reduction in the annualized exacerbation rate. And again, I think... It's important to look at these things because, again, at least for me, when you're looking at asthma, you're probably also going to start to look at 
COPD, really more the chronic bronchitis and the irreversible COPD, which is, again, big pet peeve of mine is when patients just, or when um, students of mine just say COPD without describing if it's emphysema or chronic bronchitis. And then there's etapicumab. I think, is that right? yeah. ete, ete. I, Too many consonants. Guys. Can we like come up, can we get some vowels involved in this a little bit, which also blocks interleukin 33? Again, and what we're looking for here is we're looking for that analyzed exacerbation rate of coming down. And so you're going to start to see these monoclonal antibodies become more common. Again, we've seen it with SARS-CoV-2 infection. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to, we, we've seen it with actually RSV infection now too. Right. Um, we're seeing it with asthma. This current wave of medicine is extremely important being able to inhibit these cellular communicators um, and understand what the presence of these cytokines mean to the body. I think it's extremely important for us to be able to have conversations that surround that because we want to make our patients better. I mean, just think about if you could calm down the cytokine response in septic shock when patients are presenting, even in cardiogenic shock, you know, the same thing. So, Selecting treatment, factors to consider for patients who remain uncontrolled despite um, treatment. These are the the types of things you want to pay attention to. We know that biologic therapy is indicated at step five of GINA guidelines. Yes, I think that's an archaic way of thinking, but we're starting to really understand that this isn't just a localized disease, right? People with type 2 disease have different manifestations of the illness other than just asthma, right? They might have atopic derm. They might have right. upper airway inflammation, mm-hmm. chronic rhinocytositis. The first available treatments targeted this type 2 inflammation, IgE, interleukin-5, interleukin-4, and 13. Now we want to target more of that airway epithelial cell communicating molecules like TSLP, right? Anti-TSLP is going to be important. I've, I, I don't know how many patients you've put on it. I think I've put five on it since mm-hmm. the initiation in the last month or so. And I'm seeing some pretty good results. You're, yeah, I'm sure no, absolutely. And, and the great thing is that, you know, the company is very supportive, even though obviously there's always a lag with uh, insurance plans getting on board with it. But it's nice to be able to get people on this and get them under control because then you can always further narrow that approach, right? But the key is just getting uh, people under control because people are scared. We're still in the midst of a pandemic. People don't want to go to urgent care. They don't go to ER. This came out right around the time of the new Omicron variant. So it is helpful that we can use something else to keep our patients safe. Right. And if you are, you know, if you're a clinician and you're prescribing this therapy, and the insurance company says no, or you got to talk to our medical director, make that phone call, make that time for the five minutes, teach them a little bit. At least in my experience, most medical directors of insurance companies have no idea of any of this. And so I find myself teaching them and allowing them to understand. You go in meetings and then they begin to understand and then it gets approved on their plans and it leads to better patient care overall. So just make that phone call, stay on that phone for five minutes and talk to them about this so that they can develop an understanding. It's really important to not only learn about cellular communication, but to teach cellular communication by communicating with people who make decisions. So I really feel like that's important. There's going to be more data to come on anti-IL-33 and anti-IL-25s and others as we move forward um, in science. So we really appreciate you guys being here today. So we'll take any questions you have. Um, It looks like you want to take that first question. We we have a few that have come in ahead of time. So 
One of the first ones that came in was, uh, can anti-TSLP therapy be used in children? So currently, it's approved for 12 and up. I'm sure, uh, you know, there are going to be trials underway, if not already, for under 12. But right now, yeah, some children, they can, especially adolescents and teenagers. Right. And then the other, the second question we got was, is ipratropium effective to prevent asthma exacerbations, which is an interesting question, right? We're talking about a muscarinic antagonist. Now, it reduces hospitalizations. Um, I don't know if it's really a, a, a exacerbation preventer mm-hmm. as it's meant to be described, but it does reduce hospitalizations. So I, I, I think for me, um, is it appropriate for people to be on it? Yes, it's appropriate for people to be on it. I think it's cool, but to think that it just prevents exacerbations, I don't know so much. Right, so. Yeah. and especially in combination with the controller therapy, right. possibly, and there are many now right. that have them combined, but I think alone, uh, likely not. Um, and then the third question we have, is there any way to measure TSLP? So to my knowledge, I don't know of any uh, commercially available tests for TSLP. Do you? No, I mean, can you measure it? Yeah, you could measure it if you send it to, at least in my mind, the University of Cincinnati, they'll measure the blood. They charge you a lot of money to do that. <laughs> but I think that we're trying to get to the point of establishing ease in measuring cytokine levels because I actually think in the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to be directing our targeted therapy based on cytokine levels when people present to the hospital Mm -hmm. and probably when people present outpatient-wise. So I think we're getting there, but there's no, you can do it, yes, but is there an easy way to do it? No, not right now. And to your point, you probably don't need to, right? This is more of a clinical picture where you can predict if someone will respond well to TSLP. And the nice thing is, in most cases, they likely will, given the broad effect of it. Right. What is the role of innate lymphoid cell type 2 in severe asthma? So I think that innate lymphoid cells type 2 have a role. Innate lymphoid cell type 2s do respond, right, to the alarmins, right? So when the alarmins are secreted, the innate lymphoid cell type 2 is there to start to secrete interleukin-5, interleukin-13. It probably secretes interleukin-4 too. Um, and there's a couple of other receptors on the cell that lead to the recruitment of um, white blood cells in the area. So it does have a role, um, and it has a significant role at that, I think. But again, I think, thank you for being here, you guys. Really appreciate you coming here this morning. You guys were great. Thank you so much for coming out and participating. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FTN 860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca LP.